Thanks, Grace, for the Bible reading. Uh, good morning, everyone. Glad everyone made it safe uh, in the wet weather. Uh, so we're starting a new series on the I Am statements in the book of John. So there's seven of those in total. Um, so hopefully, yeah, throughout this series, we'll get to uh, dig deeper into who Jesus claims himself to be from the book of John. Um, and that would lead us nicely into Easter as well. Uh, before I begin, let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you so much that um, you reveal to us who you are. And in uh, the book of John, we see clearly who Jesus is. Father, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear what this means. And Father, we pray that we will respond rightly to the person of Jesus. In his name we ask. Amen. Uh, it was supposed to be a relaxing outing with friends. Uh, See, so one long weekend, a bunch of us from church decided to uh, drive an hour and a half uh, to go to the Blue Mountains, you know, uh, west of Sydney, for a bushwalk. Uh, getting in the thick of nature, you know, fresh air, birds singing, awesome views, uh, even getting the heart racing a bit, um, climbing up and down the long stretches of stairs. Uh, the only problem was uh, it wasn't relaxing at all, because before long, we found ourselves bushwalking in complete darkness. Uh, out of the 15 of us, not a single one of us stopped to realize that because we were stuck in really bad traffic on the way up to the Blue Mountains, we actually started our bushwalk a few hours late. Uh, late enough that the sun would actually set soon after we started our trek. Uh, and this is uh, going to date me, but this was before the time of smartphones, and nobody had brought a torch, right? Uh, so for what seemed like an eternity, we slowly shuffled our way in the pitch darkness, right? Stumbling through uneven ground, logs lying in, in our path, hunching down. I had like a tiny keychain light, you know, on your, on your keychain, and this tiny little LED, uh, so this is an exaggeration. I did, we didn't even see that. Like, it was just everyone was like hunching down low, trying to figure out what the path was. Uh, but the worst part was that it was meant to be super scenic, right? Super scenic because much of this bushwalk was right on the edge of a cliff face with epic views. Now, mind you, like, the worst part wasn't that we couldn't see anything, but it's like, we, wasn't sh we weren't sure if any one of us might have just fallen off a cliff at any given moment. Right? I felt genuine fear that someone wasn't going to make it out alive. Until finally, after I don't know how long, we saw in the distance a, a dim orange glow. And so we just went straight for it. And then finally, we, we emerged from the bushland into civilization again, onto a, a street lit up with street lights. And I will always remember that, that joy, that relief of finally stepping out from darkness onto the well-lit street, right? And it didn't matter that we had no idea where we were, right? We just saw a light and went straight for it, right? Again, before we had smartphones, before Google Maps, we just had our uh, Nokia dumb phones. Uh, but we were in the light. We were safe. We didn't have to fear walking off the side of a cliff. At that moment, I experienced how good it was to be in the light. 
And of course, in our passage today, Jesus says that he is the light, right? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this is actually the the second I am statement in John's gospel. Uh, Pastor Pete will go back and cover the first one next week. Uh, But this claim right here, that's a bold claim no matter how you look at it, right? But what does he mean? What does Jesus mean that he is the light of the world, right? Maybe... It's the fact that we are blind without Jesus. Maybe he reveals the way to God. Maybe as light reveals things that we wouldn't um, otherwise have known about ourselves, about God, about um, himself. Maybe Jesus reveals sin in our lives. All right? Maybe these, these are all true. But of course, when it comes to understanding what Jesus is talking about, what the text is talking about, what do we first consider, guys? What's the first thing that we, to help us understand what a Bible passage is about? Context, yay, right? And so the time and place in which Jesus says this actually tells us a lot about what Jesus is trying to say himself, right? Uh, Because where are we at this moment? From chapter 7, Jesus has been teaching where? At the feast, at the festival of tabernacles. Uh, And by chapter 8, they're at the end of that festival, Now, that actually tells us something. Uh, Because when we hear the Feast of Tabernacles or Festival of Tabernacles, that should remind us of Israel's time in the desert for 40 years, right? We we just came out of our our series on Exodus last year. Uh, Tabernacles just isn't the word for, for tents, right? They were all living in tents in the desert for 40 years. And so this festival was a celebration of what, had, what God had done for them uh, during those 40 years, right? Taking them to a land of their own, no more slavery, a land of abundance, a land living under God, under God's blessing. But particularly at the end of the festival, which we're told that we are at right now, if you were to go to the festival during that time, you would have seen a warm glow over the whole city of Jerusalem. And it's not because of street lamps, because there were no street lamps, right? Because at the end of this festival was a focus on lighting four ginormous lamps, right? Four of them, which were over 20 meters tall. And they were set up in the temple area. It was so bright, these four lamps, that it would light up the entire city, or at least give a glow over the entire city of Jerusalem. And the people, not only would they be sitting under these giant lamps, but they too will be dancing with joy, and they too will be carrying torches in their hands to celebrate. And so, does anyone want to hazard a guess as to why there's such a big focus on light at the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles, or even during the Feast of the Tabernacles? Anyone want to take a stab? What's light got to do with celebrating their time in the desert? Think back to our series on Exodus. Any ideas? When does light appear as God's people were wandering around the desert as they came out of Egypt? Life group. New creation. Separation of light and darkness. Yes, Gary? Oh, 
okay, so there, there is just an association of the word with light, okay, and, and, and safety. But in, in, in the 40 years, in, in, as they came out of Egypt, where did life, or sorry, light come in, guys? Sorry? The pillar of light, the fire? Yeah, so God manifested himself as a great pillar of fire in the night, right? So that even in the nighttime, the people could pack up their tents and follow God and, and, and be led to safety through the night. As the people came out of Egypt, remember what, what time it was? It was pitch black, right? It was a darkness. And what did God do? God separated one side was darkness and one side was light, right? Uh, pointing to Genesis 1, which we'll, we'll, we'll be looking at uh, later in the year, right? So this whole festival, the end of the festival, is full of light to remind us this is what God did for us, right? God gave us light to keep us alive in the desert to point us the way to go. And so can you start to see now what Jesus is actually claiming? He says, just as God gave you that light, just as God led you through the desert out of slavery into the promised land, so too I am that light. I am the one who will lead you to the promised land. I am the one who will set you on your right path. I am the one who's going to lead you to life. You're celebrating this festival of tabernacles? Well, look no further than me. Without me, you are all walking in darkness. Now, these are really strong words, right? But leading, you know, God's people to the promised land, that, 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 that's clear for people. You know, even in Jesus' time, it, doesn't, it didn't, wouldn't even make much sense because they were already in the promised land. They were in Israel, right? So what does it mean for Jesus to be guiding them to the promised land then? Well, here's the thing. Because yes, the people were living in the promised land already, but life wasn't as you might expect, in a place called the Promised Land. Uh, they were ruled by pagan Romans. There was sickness and death all around. If you read uh, the gospel narratives, there were spiritual powers that oppressed the people. And I think that's actually something that we might look around us today and say the same. Because on the surface, aren't we living in a promised land of sorts? Uh, when we describe our life in Brisbane, Australia, particularly compared to the rest of the world, we have low crime, so many opportunities to learn, to be qualified, to, to make a, a living doing whatever we want. We've got government welfare that supports us. Uh, for those who can't support themselves, we've got Medicare. There's just so much here that most people, right, the vast majority of the people around the world would look at and think, you guys are living in paradise. And yet, Jesus' words likewise speak to us today, just as they did to Israel back then. Because in all our prosperity, in all our comfort and physical blessing, aren't we still as lost as ever? Right? We're, we're far richer than any generation that has come before us. I was explaining to my kids, you know, uh, we were complaining, you know, we're not so as well off as some of her friends in the schools. You know, they, they get all these really cool TVs and, and iPads for all. And we're so, you know, we are poor. But we had to remind them, hey, we are living far better than the kings <laughs> ever did just a couple of hundred years ago. Even, not even, even like a hundred years ago, right? We have so much. We have so much abundance. Can you imagine someone, imagine that we could just hop on a plane and fly over the seas in a couple of hours, right? 
We are far richer than any generation that has come before us. We are far more connected, thanks to technology, to so many people around the world. And yet, the number of people who suffer from loneliness, those diagnosed with depression, anxiety, seem to be just climbing every single year. What does Jesus' light reveal to us? Jesus shows us that there is more to this material and physical world than we can touch and see. Right? There, is a, there is a deeper spiritual reality, a true purpose, a, a goal, a promised land that we hunger for that this world could never satisfy. It's not a place that we can sit in. Jesus shows us that we can't actually see that we're actually stumbling in the dark without him. That we are all people who have turned away from God and desperately need to get back into relationship with God. Right? Seeing Jesus' light allows us to turn from our darkness, right? That, that, that life headed towards destruction and instead allows us to turn towards God. Only Jesus can show us that reality. But there's one last element to Jesus' claim. Because when Jesus says he is the light of the world, that's a phrase that again, surprise, surprise, comes up in the Old Testament. Uh, in particular, does anyone want to guess which book this phrase comes up a lot. This is a tricky one. No, that's fine. Uh, it's in the book of Isaiah. The phrase uh, light for the Gentiles or light to the nations comes up over and over again. Like the Gent- Gentiles is just another word that means nations, right? Which means the rest of the world. And in the context of Isaiah, that this light to the nations will open the eyes of the blind. This light will release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This light will enable God's salvation to reach the ends of the earth. So yes, in the context of what we're talking about here, God is about to save Israel from exile. They've just been kicked out of their homeland for 70 years. But God is saying, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you back to your homeland. But what is super surprising here is that not only will God save his people out of darkness, right? It's too small a thing for God to only save his people. But God will ultimately save the whole world out of darkness. Those who know nothing about God's plans or God's laws, the whole world will eventually see that light and be rescued and be restored. And that was God's plan from the beginning, to save the whole world. And again, as Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is saying, this is me. I am that guy. I am the fulfillment of God's promises to bring to completion God's plan to save the whole world from their sin. And so you might think, all right, Jesus is that light. Great. The whole world can know that Jesus is the light. Everyone is going to be rescued. That should be happily ever after, right? But as we all know, that's not the case because simply seeing the light is not enough. Uh, In the 1980s, uh, General Motors was in trouble. Uh, General Motors was, at the time, the at one time, the biggest car manufacturer in the world, right, let alone America. But by the 1980s, Americans were losing their faith in American-built cars. Uh, since the, uh, in the, in the 50s, GM sold over half the cars in the US. But then came 
the Japanese cars. Right? These imports were so cheap to buy, they were cheap to run, they were good on fuel. But most importantly, they had an impeccable record when it came to build quality and reliability. Right? When you spent your hard-earned money on a Japanese car, you knew that it was going to last. GM cars, on the other hand, were known to be poorly made, often with major defects right off the assembly line. And so as GM cars kept breaking down, kept producing problems for their customers, these customers eventually stopped buying them. But in 1984, the year I was born, so it was a great year, there was a turning point, 1984. Toyota and GM would come together in partnership to build cars, right? It was a way for Toyota to get their foot in the American market to start making cars and... For GM, that was great news because GM could then see, as they partnership with Toyota, everything that made Toyota so great. And so they built a new uh, plant together called Numi, uh, and Toyota and GM would partner together to build quality cars together. All the processes that they learnt, they taught to eliminate defects, all the tools that they needed to do the job reliably. And you know what? It actually worked. This plant produced cars that far exceeded any other plant in terms of build quality and reliability, any quality of any other U.S. car ma manufacturer, not just GM. And the customers noticed. They loved this one small car that came out of this factory line. Right, The one, only one that came out of this factory, the only factory that made this car. And so with all these secrets and knowledge that Toyota had taught GM, that should have been a huge watershed moment for, for them, right? But it wasn't. Because there were small people who were excited about this. Those who worked in this plant, the managers, the employees, they saw what a huge impact doing things the Toyota way made. But the problem was no one else cared, right? They invited all the other managers for all the factories to come and visit this plant to see how great things were. But when they saw it, they were like, nah, I'm not interested. They saw the radical difference it would make, but they walked away saying, look, that works for you guys, but you know, it's too hard. It's too much of a cultural change. You just keep doing things your way. I'll do things my way. And so as a result of their inaction, GM continued to decline until it filed for bankruptcy in 2009, and it needed the government to bail them out. That's the only reason why you still hear them today. How did they get here, right? They had all the knowledge they needed. They had seen firsthand with their eyes. They have firsthand experience about completely turning their, their production around, but they refused to change. You might say they saw the light, but they found it more comfortable to stay in the darkness. And this is the case for many of those who heard Jesus' teachings, right? The Jewish leaders uh, in particular, they hear Jesus claiming to be the light, but they keep arguing back. Verse 13, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And the Jewish leaders are saying, look, you have no witness you're making these bold claims. You can say whatever you want about yourself, but you have no proof. And that sounds fair, doesn't it? Right? It sounds fair to be skeptical about Jesus' claims. 
This man suddenly rocks up and says, I'm the light of the world. But that's not how it happens, right? Because we have seven chapters of context leading up to chapter 8, right? Jesus had already a proven record that he had the backing. He had a witness other than himself, God the Father, right? Just think through the first seven chapters of John. John 1, Jesus is baptized by John, and a voice from heaven declares that he is God's son. John 4, he heals who? A royal official's son, a well-known person. The boy was on his deathbed, and Jesus miraculously heals him. John 5, Jesus heals a lame man simply by speaking to him. And remember, all these things happened in public. The Jewish leaders were there. They were involved, arguing with Jesus about healing on the Sabbath and whatnot, right? Remember, all this took place in plain sight. And so that should tell you that Jesus is not just some random claiming to be the light of the world. It should be clear that he wasn't a fraud with the backing of his miracles. He wasn't a lunatic, lunatic. But just because this truth is clear, it doesn't mean that everyone accepts it. Uh, John himself says in John chapter 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. See, in our post-enlightenment view of ourselves, Uh, We like to think that if given enough correct information, enough facts, right, we will naturally make all the right choices for ourselves. That's not really true, is it? Because the problem is that we don't have enough information. The problem is that we don't like what we know to be true. We don't like being told that, hey, actually, you've been walking in darkness your whole lives. We don't like the idea that we're wrong, and Jesus is right. We don't like the idea of we needing to put hard work of turning our lives around. And so again, what, what about us then? If Jesus truly is the light of the world, then is that actually impacting our lives? Are we actually living as though that is the case? Now firstly, for those of us who aren't yet followers of Jesus, can I ask you to step into the light? Maybe you've been here for a little while, you've heard talks on the Bible, you're sort of familiar with God's Word, you've tasted a bit of the light, but you haven't made the step to fully step into the light yet, right? Maybe you've heard about the the miracles, the signs, the teachings, and they all point to Jesus being the Son of God, but you haven't saying, I want to go all in yet. But if this is you, can I encourage you to take it seriously, to take it seriously about taking that step fully into the light. Let that light guide your life. But maybe you're not quite there. Maybe you're just not sure, right? You just, you just started dabbling in. And then can I encourage you to keep digging into who Jesus is, whether he truly is the one you can go all in on, because with claims that Jesus makes, you can't sit on the fence. But if you are someone who claims to follow Jesus, or at least... If you say you know that Jesus is the light of the world, then do our lives actually reflect that? So let me just give you a few ways that this might show in our lives. At first, do we treat Jesus as the light of the world when we are actually in the world, right? When we're at work chatting with our colleagues, you know, chatting to our neighbors across the fence, 
when we're at Friday drinks, is the light of Jesus something that we're looking to shine bright through us every moment, right? Are we carefully thinking through, praying through, praying for openings that might speak that light into the light into the life of our teammates? Or do we try to cover up that light, avoiding the conversation, finding excuses not to bring it up? Do we say in our hearts to ourselves, my friends, my colleagues, my family, they need to step in the light because otherwise they're in darkness? Or do we instead think, well, they're actually doing pretty well. You know, they've got a nice job, nice house, nice car. Why would they need the light of Jesus? Is that what we think? Right? Where are we at when it comes to living out what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world from Monday to Saturday? Uh, But second, a more personal reflection for ourselves. Remember our natural disposition, our natural tendency to want to hide in the darkness because we don't want our sins exposed. We don't want to repent and change how we live. The struggle is real no matter how long you've been a Christian, right? Right? Um, We don't just go, oh, great, I step into the light. Um, How many odd years ago, I'm safe now. (laughs) But we need to actively keep allowing Jesus' light to shine in our lives. How do we do that? Well, walking in the light means we rely on Jesus to deal with our sin continually. After pointing out that God is light, right, uh, John goes on to tell us what it means to live in that light in his epistle, right? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Did you notice that one thing that John keeps repeating about walking in the light? It is recognizing the presence of sin in our lives, right? The Christian walk is not about perfectionism. I've I've, I've talked about this last year already, right? In fact, John says that if we think that there is no sin in our lives, not only are we deceiving ourselves, but we're calling God a liar, And so, yes, John does make it clear that we are not to continue sinning in chapter 3 of the same letter, right? That is, we are not to live lives that are characterized by sin, that we don't care about our sin, that we're happy for our sin to be there, right? John says, don't live sinful lives. But he says, what does it look like? Verse 9, it looks like confessing our sins. It looks like letting Jesus deal with our sin, letting Jesus' own blood wash away the filth of our uncleanness. Not just once at the point of our conversion, but continually. As long as you walk in the light, as long as your sin is continually to be revealed, even as you grow in godliness, as you deal with your sin one at a time. On the Christian walk, there is never a place where we stop fighting sin. There's no retirement age when it comes to our struggle with sin. But keep coming to God. Keep confessing. Keep repenting and be continually washed by the blood of Jesus who gives us that life. So let's be honest with ourselves. When was the last time you truly broke down and confessed your sin before God? 
When was the last time you consciously thought about the presence of sin in your life? The last time you were cut to the core because you had disobeyed God and dishonored God's name. Because as we've seen today, Jesus, as the light of the world, points out sin. If there's been no acknowledgement of sin, no confession of sin, then how can we really claim to be walking in the light? Brothers and sisters, do you see your sin? Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So let us step into the light. Let us stay in the light and let the light deal with us because we need the light of, our world, of the world in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have sent your son Jesus to be our light, to show us that reality that we were so blind to, that we, the reality that we so need, that our greatest need is you. Thank you that not only do you shine that light in our lives to show our sin, our brokenness, but Jesus is the one that saves us. Jesus is the light of the world that reconciles the whole earth, Gentiles, all nations, back to you, Lord. And so, Father, help us to keep walking in the light. And for those of us here who might not have stepped into the light, Father, we pray that you will keep shining your light in their lives, that they too will see the truth and step into the light. In Jesus' name we pray.